Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Where can you get the best medical information anytime, anywhere? I think right here on The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Please note, this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not provide personal medical advice. For that, please consult with your trusted healthcare professional. Today's topic is going to be about how to achieve the best sleep. Now, we all know what it's like not to get a good night's sleep. It feels terrible. <laughs> when I was 24 years old and I was a medical resident working in the hospital, I was on call every fourth night and then would do essentially a 36-hour shift. And the only way I got through those days was with caffeine, a lot of coffee, a lot of Coca-Colas, and my body felt terrible. I, I had back spasms all the time. And this went on for three years, the toughest physical years in my life. Um, I don't know if it made me a better doctor, but it sure made me appreciate the feeling of a good restful sleep. My guest today is an expert on sleep and ways to prepare your mind to get a good night's sleep. She is Dr. Sarah Mednick. Uh, she's a professor of psychology at the University of California at Irvine, where she directs the Sleep and Cognition Lab. She is the author of two terrific books, Take a Nap and Change Your Life, and more recently, The Power of the Downstate. So I think we have the right person on the, on the Zoom call today. So I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Sarah Mednick to the podcast. Hey, Dean, thanks for having me. Okay. Now, I think I read a little bit in your book, you know, The Power of the Downstate, because I like to get background on people that early on, I think you were interested in acting. And then you worked a little bit at a job at a psych unit at Bellevue, which is a pretty crazy place. So we, I know it well. I did some rotations there. So how did you end up in a career in academia and in the field of psychology and sleep? Yeah, you know, it's interesting when you are in theater and then when you get a job at a mental hospital, that there seems to be actually some pretty strong parallels between those, okay. <laughs> those environments. Because theater is, a, is also sort of, you know, a, a, it's a very creative environment. And right. it also has a lot of um, people who, you know, are ready to perform. And uh, and really, you know, the art world in New York City was a really exciting place to be. Um, and there was a lot of really exciting, um, interesting theater and art going on. And then when I got the job at Bellevue, um, it was because I had gotten a touring acting company job. And it was finally like, oh, my big break, you know, I'm going to be touring, tra traveling the world. Mm. And it turned out to be hell and I hated it. And it was a really horrible experience. And I was just staying in truck stops and I couldn't stand the person who I was traveling with. And I suddenly realized like, you know what, man, I think that maybe I have more to give the world than this as a life. Um, and so then I decided to regroup and I wanted to take some classes so I could get a master's in something else because I always studied theater. And then uh, I got a job at Bellevue Mental Hospital because if you work at NYU, you could take free classes. Mm -hmm. So then I started taking classes in psychology. Um, but once I got the job at Bellevue, I was in the psych ER and it was just an amazing experience. You know, I, I would see people having obviously the worst day of their lives but at the same time i my brain was stimulated what's going on with these people what is going on inside the brains of somebody who is 
having florid hallucinations and who, you know, has all these different ways of even talking, you know, like stringing sentences and stringing words together. I thought it was fascinating. And then that was really, I thought, wow, the brain is, maybe that's what I want to study. You know, I really didn't know. And so then I just started focusing on psychology and then got into grad school and the rest is history. Interesting. Okay. Let's get into sleep because obviously good sleep is really important. How would you define or describe good sleep? You know, is it the amount of sleep? If you get those eight hours, is it, can it be shorter, but you just feel very rested after, you know, again, in your lab and, and working, you know, in your research, what, you know, again, if somebody says to you, like, I, I get six hours of sleep and I feel really good, you know, or somebody else says, uh, you know, I, I need eight hours, you know, I'm worried, you know, because now everybody has those tracking things. Oh, my sleep wasn't so good, according to the, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the app. So what, what, what do you, what do you tell people? It's an excellent question. You know, how do we define good sleep? We have lots of different measurements, right? We can look at how long does it take you to fall asleep? How many minutes do you spend awake after you've already been asleep, right? So you've fallen asleep and then you wake up at night. How long are you up at night? Mm, right. um, and those right. are all measurements of poor sleep. And then there's duration of sleep, right? How long have, how many minutes have you been sleeping? And then there's, you know, these quanti quantities of, of subjective feelings. How do you feel when you wake up? Do you feel refreshed? Do you feel well rested? Do you feel ready to take on your day? And then how did you do that day? You know, did you get along with people? Did you get along with your spouse? Could you focus? Um, were you irritable, right? So there's, there's so many different ways of looking at the whole cycle of sleep. And a lot of the time, I feel like a lot, you know, that idea of, well, what do you, how would you rate your sleep quality? So it's Sometimes, subjective. I mean, you're really, you're asking them, I mean, there's no, obviously, no matter what these apps say and everything too, you really, it's a very subjective thing. It seems like everybody's sleep is different. You know, that like, I, I, I don't really know what, what makes me tick, but I know if I get to sleep by 10, 1030, I'll have had a good night of sleep. If I let myself go past like 1130, then I'm not going to sleep well for some reason. And so, you know, you, you kind of know your own self, right? You know what yeah. works. It doesn't mean you do those things. And yeah. that's, of course, yeah. the struggle. Um, but I think it's, it is different for everybody. And so relying on these kind of generalizations of you need eight hours or seven and a half hours and, you know, you should never wake up in the middle of the night and, you know, you shouldn't take so long to get to sleep. Those things can be quite stressful for people because I, I think it makes them think that they're doing something wrong or bad. Right. That's a great point. It's like a it becomes like a competition within themselves. You know, it's funny though, because <laughs> I'm a big sports fan and I was reading recently, you know, like Justin Verlander, you know, he's, he just came to the Mets actually. He's a, what they call a Cy Young award winner, a great pitcher. Uh, I believe he was with the Houston Astros before, but he, I mean, he would swear he needs 12 hours of sleep, you know, because you know, a lot of these teams now, especially when they're flying, they have like these sleep specialists because they, you know, teams are, everything's about money. And they said, you know, if this guy gets a better night's sleep and pitches and wins more games. He deserves that couple extra million dollars and it's good for all of us. But I know a lot of people like they, they sleep 12 hours. They're like, I, I feel groggy. It's just too much. It's like I've been drugged. Yeah. So, well, I think it, particularly high performance athletes really do need a lot of sleep. So one of the people I interviewed for my book was Glover Teixeira, who is a 
MMA world champion. And mm. he had become a world champion as the oldest MMA fighter. He subsequently lost it, but he, you know, he was 42 and he won his first wow. MMA world championship. And then, you know, he couldn't necessarily keep it up, but it's pretty amazing that this guy got to where he got. He's the oldest of his yeah. crew, right? And what he does is, you know, on the week of the fight, he sleeps, he stays in bed for 20 hours. Wow. And it's, you know, so the idea of, um, you know, you need to be, so in my book, I talk about upstates and downstates, right? right so what is the that, upstate, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, the idea that you should be training hard, training hard, training hard up until the point of the championship. No, his point was, I need to stay totally rested, give myself as much possible quality sleep, and then be ready to go. Did he figure this out on his to. own or he, uh, he figured this totally him? out on his own. Interesting. Yeah. A lot of these people, they just kind of figure out something works. Like they, they have like a good fight and then all of a sudden you're know, a good outing or a good, you know, game. They're like, Ooh, that's what I did before. They get very, um, yeah. And he's in bed every day, 12 hours for sure. Wow. You know, I guess, you know, what you're getting to also, that was like, my next question is it's sort of routine. I mean, we all do sort of, we have these internal clocks, which I, I've discussed on other podcasts. You know, uh, when I've talked about um, circadian rhythms with a couple of experts that were great. So it does seem like our body has these internal clocks. We tend to like routines. So I'm, I'm sure you probably advocate like most sleep specialists that the key things are to getting a good night's sleep, essentially dark room, cold room. I mean, temperature is important. Um, no electronic devices so the light doesn't upset your circadian rhythm. Do you feel those cooling mattresses are helpful? Uh, you know, that's become a big thing. You know, everybody's like, you know, get your body temperature cooler, you know, and uh, you'll sleep better. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot you can talk about about body temperature because for sure, those cooling mattresses can be really great, especially for women with hot flashes. Okay. Um, those can be extremely helpful. You know, one of the strongest signals for our bodies to head into sleep is a decrease in core body temperature. And that really is the difference between your core body temperature and your extremities. So letting the extremities um, be out in a cool environment means that the blood is out, you know, the blood that's in the fingers and in the hands is actually um, cooling down and it's sending cooler blood to the rest of the body and it's cooling the whole body down. So it's great to be in a cold room. It's great to have your feet and your hands out of the covers in order to achieve that. It's a great signal um, to get yourself to sleep, even taking a hot shower and then going into a cold room. Well, you know, let me ask you that. I do that all the time. I, I find, even if I don't need to shower, because maybe I've showered later in the day for some reason, but if I take a nice hot shower, my head gets wet and I go into my bed, you know, obviously after I've dried off, I'm, I, maybe I'm also more relaxed, but I, I, I tend to sleep better. But you're saying that this part that's of that's a temperature cooling? decrease, right? So going, going from, from a hot, hot shower to mm. a colder room mm. is a signal. That's you know, ideal. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Okay. But, the, but you know, the thing that what this brings up, which is something I'm super interested in, I have one paper on it. I'm also starting to do other work on it is how is this affecting, um, how is this affected by global climate change, right? So by having just generally hotter summers, yeah. um, hotter weather world round, who is being affected by this? Well, not people who can climate control. Like they're right. going to still have- If you're saying you're fine. <laughs> you're fine. But there's a lot of people in the world, a lot of poverty areas, yes. old people who don't have that climate control. Mm. And they're really, what, what you find, there's a recent study that came out where they looked at 
um, individual days in heat waves and using Fitbit could track people's sleep mm. and showed that when there's a heat wave, people's sleep decreases mm. and it never adapts to the heat. They just stay in a chronic sleep deprivation, oh, sleep, wow. sleep reduced state over that period of sleep. So heading into warmer weather, I think that we're going to have to think about how to keep, you That's know, how to keep people cool at night. Yeah. Okay. Let me ask you the typical key question. And I see also, I take care of a lot of patients in my functional medicine, immunology practice, a lot of people with chronic fatigue and uh, a lot of other medical complex medical conditions. But the typical issue again, is sleep could be very poor for some of them, but a lot of them also, you know, you'll hear it. They'll say, I had a very stressful day. I've had a very stressful week. My boss was mad at me or a student got a really bad grade or they're not prepared for their finals. So they're agitated. And, you know, this obviously spills over through their sleep. What would you maybe tell, you know, any of these type of patients, you know, what, what to do if you've had a, a stressed out bad day and you know, sleep is going to help you if you can get that sleep. Yeah. I mean, you know, what I really feel is that sleep is a 24-hour job. You can't expect to have a full day of stress and just amped up, you know, being this in this revved up state, sympathetic arousal, fight or flight symptoms, like you're basically getting high heart rate, getting your stress systems, getting your overthinking, and then think that you're just going to fall into this peaceful slumber by the time you hit the pillow, right? So yeah. what what's really important is to set yourself up during the day multiple times to check in with how you're feeling and to go go take a walk when you're getting super stressed, you know, do some just, deep breathing. Right. When you're I was just about to ask stressed. you that. You know, I remember there was a time also in my early in my career, I was super, super stressed. And it wasn't just one day, it was day after day, week after week. And what I had to do, I mean, again, this was just sort of instinctual, I would go for a walk at night. I mean, even in cold weather. And I would walk like two or three miles because I just really wanted to physically tire out my body. So is there a component of that? I mean, obviously, I know even when I'm not stressed, if I do physical exercise, like I played tennis today for an hour and a half, you know, it felt wonderful. I sleep better. So is that what you're essentially saying that, you know, part of it's that physical? It's, yeah, it's exercise for sure. But you got to be careful when you're exercising, particularly. So I'm, I'm, I want to get into a little bit of the book stuff because yeah, sure. it's it's about these two, it's, it's about your systems of, in your body. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the strongest system that we have that regulates how stressed we are and how calm we are is our autonomic nervous system. Right. And I talk a lot about that in the yes. book, but in, in one of the, you know, there's two branches. One is the fight or flight response and one is the rest and digest response. And, and I call them in the book rev because it revs you up. Right. And then um, restore because it restores all of your balance. Right. And it does a lot to sort of regenerate you overnight. Um, and also when you're it, it, also during the day. So, Creating that balance is really the biggest marker for you getting a good night of sleep, making sure you're not too revved up during the day. And how can you do that? How do you increase levels of restorative activity and this parasympathetic restorative activity is you do things like deep breathing. Mm. Um, the breath is the strongest modulator of your autonomic nervous system. Deep breathing, slow, deep breathing makes you feel like you're safe, that you're relaxed, that you're in control of the situation. Um, so spending time in any kind of uh, deep breathing, it could just be, you know, doing some slow, deep breathing for 10 minutes a day, but it could also be doing yoga. It could be doing Tai Chi or any kind of meditation that involves this restorative deep breathing. 
exercise is a really big one to regulate your rev restore because exercise, if it's the kind that really gets your heart pounding and your, you know, your lungs really, you know, breathing fast, that is going to excite your sympathetic rev response. You're going to get revved up by that. And what happens is the body immediately tries to calm you down and it brings up this restorative response. So what's great is that you can use exercise to bring the restorative response by increasing rev. And then what follows is this nice restorative response, but you need to be careful when you do it. Is it, because, is it bad to do it at night because you'll be too revved up? Exactly, because you stay revved for hours. Well, you know, you know, sometimes and you, I, I know, I, can I also tell patients, and I've heard this, you know, a lot of times, I remember <laughs> back in the day when people actually worked in offices, mm-hmm. people used to uh, go after work. You know, they'd go to the gym because, you know, they didn't have time during the day or they weren't an early bird person or they had to start at 7 in the morning anyway. And they would go like 8 o'clock at night and they were working out. And then I was hearing that they couldn't sleep well. So that's, that's the issue. It's sort of unnatural for your, yeah. I mean, there are things that you can do. I mean, any exercise that you do within three to four hours of trying to get to bed Mm -hmm. is probably going to interfere. I mean, taking a walk is fine, but stuff where you're really exciting your rev response, it's going to be hard to get to sleep because sleep is brought on by increased restorative response, right? You get this increased parasympathetic activity that brings on sleep. So if you're delaying that, you're delaying sleep. Um, So thinking about, you know, I mean, I, I hear you in terms of how do you tell people who really have, you know, kids and work and all these things. And the only time they have is at night. Everyone I know who has that schedule does have bad sleep because of that, but they also are in a bind. And I think it's just, you know, is there a way to push the exercise to, you know, the weekend and do right. less stressful exercises at night on those right. nights where it has to be nighttime? Um, because obviously the sleep is really critical, right? It's like poor sleep, poor duration of sleep, sleep, highly variable sleep is also not good for your health. Um, so trying to keep a consistent schedule where you don't keep yourself up all night um, is really determines good health. Yeah. You know, one of the things you say in the book, which I found very interesting, I just, and I need a little bit of help in, you know, in one of the uh, technical parts is that you mentioned like in your sleep research, that that's not only the brain that's affected by poor sleep, but the heart as well. And could you explain a little bit to me uh, also this whole idea about heart rate variability? You know, again, people are able to monitor this now with on their apps. And you say the heart rate variability is exquisitely affected by sleep. But I'm, I'm trying to understand is that, you know, my medical mind, when I think about heart rate variability, I, I picture an EKG, and I know you use that in some of your research, but an EKG, typically, the heart rate, unless you have an arrhythmia, you know, like an atrial fibrillation or something, is regular. You know, so it's like if your heart rate is 60, it's 60, you know, all through the EKG. So what what do you mean again by heart rate variability? Because I've heard this term that's also very important in autoimmune diseases. Yeah. So what, so what, what do you, how do you measure it? And, and what is it, you know, again, maybe explain to us again, a high variability versus a low variability, which is good and which is bad. Yeah, I'd love to. So heart rate variability is a, is a measurement that we use to look at autonomic activity because really, when you're when you're when you need to get a good measure of how well your body is reacting to the world, mm-hmm. your heart is the first thing that's going to react because it needs to send. If you suddenly have a stressful event or you need to go do something, your heart's going to start pumping blood really quickly. To right. you need to sprint, you know. Right. Then you need to suddenly recruit a lot of blood. 
to your muscles. Um, and then when you stop sprinting, you need to calm that heart rate down because it's really bad to have chronically high heart rate, right? So then restore. And, and so that's the sympathetic arousal that comes in and revs you up and gets your heart rate going super fast. And immediately when you're done running, you want to have your heart rate slow down very quickly. And that's the restorative response. So we measure that kind of dynamic relationship between rev and restore, sympathetic, parasympathetic, by looking at the variability between your heartbeats. So the heart isn't actually a metronome. It doesn't have this kind of steady time um, between the heartbeats. There, it can be like, you know, 70, 750 milliseconds between a heartbeat. And the next one could be 800. The next one could be 600. Like there's a lot of- When you say between of... the heartbeat, I'm sorry, do you mean between what we would call a QRS complex? You know, people exactly. Are used to, people are used to seeing that, you know, they see on TV, you know, the what looks like the heart monitor. So, so again- The time you know, between those QRS complexes is what, I'm, is what we're that's measuring. That's what you're talking about. So, okay, so what is better? Is it better to have greater variability? Greater variability. Because that what that your... means- Okay. Is that it means that your parasympathetic system is able to, or, or the sympathetic system is able to speed up your heart rate very, very quickly. And then the parasympathetic is able to calm it down and slow it down. So you have a lot more variability. People with low variability get up to a high heart rate and then they can't slow their heart rate down. Then their heart rate, even when they stop running, their heart rate is still going super fast because they have a weakened parasympathetic oh, system. Oh, I see what you're saying. So, so again, so somebody who's like exercise and sometimes, you know, obviously if you're going what they call 70% heart rate max, whatever too, but then it should come down when you exercise. It's, that that's should, but also when you stop exercising, that's the important right. thing. That's what I mean, so, when you stop it, right. Exactly. You need to be super flexible with the environment. Mm. And the more flexible you can be, which is recruiting the heart rate when you need it and then slowing it down the second you don't need it, that is, you know, the more you can do that, the more variable your heart rate Can you work be. on that? Or is that just through exercise? Or is that oh, also that's through breathing? Oh, that's what you can work on, is breathing. Everything that, that yeah. increases restorative activity increases HIV. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's exercise. That's you know doing this deep breathing stuff. It's getting good sleep. You know, it's it's it's. Is actually there like having... a number for this or not really? Because I, mean, I know again, as I said, people are following all this stuff. I mean, like, again, I think my son asked me. He goes, uh, I was just looking at my heart rate variability, and I was like, uh, Do you even know what that is? <laughs> no, <laughs> I know? don't think a lot of people know where it is. I think that it's right now. It's it's a variable that's used because they know they hear it being associated right. with good health. Right. And so they want to maximize it. But I think every time I explain it, people are like, oh, thanks. I never knew what that was. You know, but it's a really simple thing if you just, but you know, it takes a second to kind but of- is there a number or percentage that, that- It's different people, for men and women. It's it different does. for age, mm, right? Okay. So it's, it changes across all oh, those so different standards. there's a whole parameters. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But it's not hard to look at what the standards are for good heart rate variability. And then it changes a lot, you know, when you're exercising and you want to also know what your baseline heart rate variability, resting heart rate. And that's usually what you can record when you're lying in bed, you've just woken up and you haven't moved. You just are lying there quietly. That's your resting heart rate. Okay. And that's what you want to then compare to when you, I, I give all these equations in the book about mm -hmm. how you can use HRV to understand how healthy you are, but specifically also determine what kind of exercise you should be doing. Because, you know, a lot of people have these very standard ways of exercising. I do this and then I do this and then I do this. And sometimes, you know, what sleep is doing and what, it, what the rest restore response is doing 
is restoring all the nutrients and getting you and strengthening your muscles and getting you ready for the next bout of exercise. So if you haven't had enough restorative activity, you're going to be depleted the next time you try to exercise. So there's this whole new way of thinking about exercise, which is use your heart rate variability as a measure for how well you've restored from that last bout of exercise. I think this is so important what you're saying, because and unfortunately, it's really among researchers and experts like yourself. I mean, because if you really think about it, again, in my, again, I was reading your book saying, how do I apply this into my everyday practice? What do I need to learn? You know, because as I said, the it's almost like the information is out there now, again, with all these apps and people have, you know, the, the, the devices they can wear and, you know, everything. But clinicians are really not up to speed. They're still, you know, dealing with the everyday thing here, take an Ambien, you know, do this, that, and where they should really be looking at, where can I get at the core of changing somebody's sleep? Because it has such profound effects on their whole immune system. I mean, how and many doctors ask their patients every time they see them how they're sleeping? They ask, but very perfunctionary. How'd you sleep? Oh, well, I didn't sleep so good. A oh, big deal. <laughs> Let's right. go on. Let's I don't go on know anybody who thing. asks. I, yeah, I mean, I think most people don't get asked. Uh, you know, it's really funny. In my training, because I deal with chronic fatigue patients, I, I, again, it was something in medical school, residency, fellowship, you know, whatever. It was, it was not, you know, it was left off the questionnaire. And then... I was really fortunate working with somebody called Jacob Teitelbaum, who dealt with a lot of chronic fatigue patients. And it, it was one of his um, most important things, um, you know, in following patients. So it got me to, it's like, you know, front and center on my questionnaire. But again, for me, it's very subjective, a little bit perfunctionary in that, you know, I'm like, okay, you're not sleeping enough. We got we to gotta figure that out. But to, again, People love data. They like sometimes a very objective measure like the heart rate variability. So again, if I could get people to, you know, and I can learn more to assess this in them, say, hey, look, this is something we have to work on. Just like you work on your cholesterol or your blood pressure. This is an important thing. I mean, I know again from, I, I interviewed someone really way back who's doing fascinating work on autoimmune disease. He was actually one of the discoverers of how the vagus nerve affects the immune system and how he was able to reverse a patient who had severe rheumatoid arthritis. They actually put a stimulator into the vagus nerve yeah. to block certain signals. Kevin Tracy, he's really unbelievable. Yeah. But, it, you know, again, he was talking about heart rate variability back then. The vagus and nerve is the main uh, nerve for the parasympathetic system. Right. Right. So I, I would like to talk about the chronic fatigue because Please, it's a yeah, really um, interesting area. Mm hmm. So the book, The Downstate, is all about this idea that the downstate is, a, is you know, the, we have these rhythms and we have this upstate, which is where all of our energy is, you know, primed and ready for going out there and being and doing. And we have lots of glucose and lots of brain activity. Um, and then we use that up and then we got to go into a downstate, which right. is um, where we restore our resources. And that can be with parasympathetic, just deep breathing, um, but it can also be during sleep, right? And so we have these rhythms for every system, right? That there's a peak time for activity for our enteric system and you know our gastrointestinal system, our heart. And then there's a time that follows that needs to actually go into rest. Um, and the word downstate comes from sleep, which is that our brains, when we're in deep sleep, goes into a little period of downstate, which is um, that the whole brain stops firing. All the neurons just go into quiet mode for during these, what these call slow waves at night. Um, and it's 
part of the what makes these slow waves so restorative and so much a part of like the memory consolidation, you know, muscle repair, uh, brain cleaning that goes on during sleep is during these slow waves. Is that the delta waves? That... Yeah, it's delta and a little bit slower. There's one called a slow oscillation, actually. And those are really um, delta and slow waves are a little bit different, but it's within that range. It's, you know, delta is like four hertz to one hertz. And then mm -hmm. this is really one hertz, one hertz range. So it takes a whole second. And for half of that second, you're in an upstate and all your neurons are firing. And for the other half, all your neurons are quiet. So for 30 seconds, many times across the night, your neurons are quiet. So chronic fatigue, coming back to there, what I remember from that research was that people with chronic fatigue actually have fewer slow waves. And that's something that I think, you know, that's highly, uh, that's highly treatable. This is not something that is a mystery, is how do we make more slow waves? Well, we have to get to bed early because our slow wave sleep happens in the first part of the night. And if you start getting to bed later, then you miss out on all those slow waves. Mm -hmm. There's also lots of different devices now that we can use that increase slow waves. Um, and so that's also an, an interesting idea is what can we do to um, specifically target slow waves in certain clinical populations? What kind of device? What are we? What are you talking about? There's new ways of stimulating the person while they're sleeping. One is by sound. You can actually uh, produce sounds during the night, um, and those sounds will increase slow waves. There's some electrical stimulation that can be done that increases slow waves. So, and they're you know they're very new, but they're right there. You know they're oh, right wow. they're ready to go. Um, but I think that really, you know, but also the deep sleep. Like if you get into if you really work on your restorative response during the day and you do a lot of deep sleep, uh, deep, slow, uh, sorry, deep, slow breathing before you get to sleep, you're also increasing that parasympathetic restore activity, which also increases slow waves. Can you talk a little bit? I, I wanted to ask you questions about the brain cleaning. I remember reading, it was really interesting. I think it was in a Scientific American article that, you know, again, the what we take for granted is that, again, with good restful sleep, something like the glial cells and the lymph there's like lymphatic system in the brain. These are really, I mean, essentially they're getting rid of waste and everything. And when you don't sleep, this stuff is not functioning properly. Is that? Yeah. It's a super you? recent discovery by a Danish scientist, uh, Mike Nethergaard. And she's, you know, and her group is really the people who showed this is in rodents, but that, that, and now that you know, and now it's being shown in humans as well. But that during these slow waves, there is this huge pulse, um, and it's because the slow waves and the heart rate are actually connecting. Um, and during these big pulses, the cerebral spinal fluid is basically it's like you know pushing the flush on the toilet. It's pushing water through your brain, and when you get this water pushed through your brain, whatever is the detritus that gets left over from all the neural processing you've done that day goes with it, right? It, it goes out the system. And so that's, you know, a very interesting discovery that I think probably has a lot to do with um, aging. Uh, when we don't get enough deep sleep, which is something that happens with aging, we actually have fewer slow waves. And then um, we get more buildup of some of these proteins. And these proteins later can develop into the tangles that are associated with dementia and Alzheimer's. Mm. So it really, you know, it, and 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 there's this whole lifespan approach to looking at this because now you can see like people who don't get this kind of deep slow wave sleep in their 40s and 50s have a higher prediction for dementia and Alzheimer's in their 70s and 80s, right? So that's 
and you know, and when I say that, people are like, "Oh, you know, it's so terrifying." Because oh, now more anxiety. Now they can't more, see more. more things to be anxious about. <laughs> yeah, but it's never too late. You know, it's yeah. never too late to really think about. Okay, so if the slow waves happen the first part of the night, I have to get to sleep early. Yeah, you know, one of the things too I wanted to bring up because I, I think also I love giving my listeners like really practical tips. And this really caught my eye when I was actually reading in the Wall Street Journal uh, when they quoted you uh, about um, you know how to fall asleep better. And I know and, and two typical things happen with people. Sometimes, again, as we talked about earlier, they're very stressed, so they have trouble falling asleep. Or the reverse, like you get up in the middle of the night, you have to go to the bathroom, or you wake up a little hungry, and then again, how do you fall back asleep? And it's funny, I smiled when I was reading about this whole new thing called savoring, because it's something I, I self-discovered when I was having trouble sleeping. Now I can, and I'm sure most people can't count sheep. <laughs> that's yeah. just like the, that's the TV uh, nonsense. Yeah. But I did find when I would like start to lay in bed and sometimes like sort of get in this reverie of thinking back, like when I was even younger, like, like when I was playing competitive tennis matches or, you know, something like really interesting and enjoyable, I was able to fall asleep. And just one other tip also I, I tell my patients is that, what I've found over the years now too, very helpful is I like to have my iPad, but not visually look at it. I have like, you know, my um, earphones in and I listen to like a spiritual kind of lecture or something. And I slowly over time, I'm listening, I'm listening, and then I fall to sleep. I actually discovered that when I was doing some mindfulness training with John Kabat-Zinn and they used to read us poems and stories. And, you know, we were trying to meditate, but I would find myself falling asleep because I was getting so relaxed. So how, how effective can those things be in uh, helping people? All of these things are effective. You know, anything, we, what they're all doing is increasing your restore activity. So that, that's, okay. you know, bottom line, um, anything that is just keeping you not just relaxed, but also this feeling of safety. And I think that that's really important. There's a brilliant researcher, um, Julian Thayer, and he's come up with a really interesting um, theory of stress. And he basically says, uh, it's called guts, which is generalized unsafety theory of stress. Mm -hmm. um, and he basically says that we actually born stressed and that we learn to calm ourselves down and we learn to feel safe. And so we're born this like revved up system yeah. and mm -hmm. that over time in our lives, when we can self-soothe as babies, when we have parents that love us, take care of us, when we have friends and community and when we can face challenges and get, you know, do them ourselves, all these things build up our restorative response. And that is part of, you know, why when you, when you think back to these like positive moments, when you're in this savoring state and you're thinking back to these positive moments, there's this feeling of safety and calm right. that comes over you. Right. And that's, that is just the restorative response kind of taking over. And that does lead you into a state that's, that's conducive to getting to sleep. That's really important. Do you find a role? I mean, I know you don't really prescribe or, you know, that's not your role, but that um, melatonin has any role? Because I found it to be, unfortunately, I, I always hear such great things about it, but most patients don't find it to be beneficial. I know a lot of them use it in, uh, incorrectly. I mean, when I, I interviewed um, somebody from Columbia who was terrific, you know, basically saying they have to be on low dose because it has to sort of go in sync with your body and and people take it way too late like normally you know you should take it like several hours before you're about to go to sleep but have you when your research found it to be useful 
Yeah, I mean, I think that melatonin really has a, a place. I, I, yeah. I, I find it to, you know, if I travel, I use it. And um, you do. I, okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If I, I mean, I'm, I'm not at all somebody who says, oh, you shouldn't use any medication at all. You, mm -hmm. it's really important to sleep. So if you're just going to lie there awake and it's good, you're going to be frustrated and have a terrible day. If you have something that can help you get to sleep and it's not something you're doing on the reg, but it's, it's helpful. I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. Melatonin is definitely one of those things. I haven't really seen a lot of um, evidence of it being detrimental for long-term use. And, and as you say, people don't use it correctly. It's not a sleeping pill at all, right? right. And, but people use it as they're falling asleep and then right. they wonder why it doesn't work. I mean, it is, you know, what we're doing to our systems by living in a world of bright so, light all so the way into the day, yeah. you know, we are decreasing the onset of melatonin. And so what we need to do is reduce the amount of bright light, use blue light blockers at night, 100%, you know, especially when we have screens or any kind of light around us. But you can also be, you know, increasing your melatonin by taking these pills um, at very low doses. You right. know, when, when melatonin first came out, it was available in one milligram dose. And that's right. really all you needed. Right. Right. And now you can't find it for one milligram. No, you know, you now can't. it's like 10, More is always 15. better, right? Yeah, yeah it's and probably... it's just not the case with this. Yeah. So, you know, people are taking it wrong and they're taking too much of it. What about also in like the ambience and all the sleep medications? What I used, was, had read, they actually will give you poor sleep, even if you do fall asleep. And they affect, they, they have like a lot of negative effects aside from the addict, addiction issues with them. Sometimes. I mean, some yeah. people don't do well with it. I mean, I have a thing of Ambien that if I really can't sleep and I know use, I have a big yes. day tomorrow, I'll use some Ambien. Oh, yeah? Okay. I've had That's the same dose of 30 pills for a year now. Oh, wow. And okay. I just like, it, you know, I am not a fan of of having a bad day. <laughs> I agree with you. Oh, I know. Gosh, you know, you know, you know it's really amazing. Uh, but and I read there's something too about sleep going in, I don't know, 48 hour, 36 hour cycles, because it's funny because like sometimes again too, like maybe I had a very stressful thing or I had to do something and you know, something had to get done and I didn't get the proper amount of sleep and I felt lousy the next day or whatever, or I was, didn't feel well and I was up all night. But then like by the next night or two, I usually crash. I mean, yeah. my body says, okay, you know, that's it, you hit your limit you know, you got to sleep. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's a terrible thing to have to get to that place, you know, especially, you know, as the residents, as you were talking about that schedule, oh. nurses schedule, all that stuff. Horrible. It's really not good for you in the moment. And it's not good for you in the long term. It's not so good for um, the patients either. <laughs> it's not good for the patients either. And and the way that their patients can't get any sleep when they're oh, there gosh. in the hospital, oh, I mean, don't get me started, you know? Yeah, that's god awful. I mean, I've got, yeah, one of the people I interviewed, he was so great about it. Like, he was showing that the hospital could save millions of dollars, you know, on less, you know, he, they were able to get the patients out of the hospital fare. So by just, like, making sure that it was dark, you know, in the rooms where they were staying at night. I mean, I'm talking about, like, in ICU and, all and these, everything. You know, these Machines. beeping systems yeah, that start having nightmare. alarms just because something needs to be changed, but it's right. not vital. And right. why is it in the patient's room? Right. It's oh, it's just a mess. It's a mess. Right. I wrote a whole op-ed piece about that. I have a medium site and I wrote a whole thing about that because my son, when he was one years old, was in the hospital mm. and I stayed in the hospital with him for a month and it was just- Oh, wow. I know. Uh, it's, it's a nightmare. Ridiculous. Do you have any uh, interesting stories that stick out in your mind, even from like in your research about you know somebody who was really struggling with sleep and it was affecting them health-wise. Um, and it was just like an interesting story. I know I'm like just throwing this out, but. Yeah, but I, you know, there's so many people who, really? this is the thing is like when you 
steady sleep people really want to share. <laughs> it, it's just, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I did interview a lot of people for the book. And one of my uh, friends who I interviewed was a, he's a high executive in Sempra. And he okay. was dealing with some serious uh, travel issues where he had to fly down mm. to South America regularly. Oh, wow. Um, he had two small kids and he was turning, you know, he was getting into his late forties and things were just going to hell. And he suddenly was up in the middle of the night and he couldn't sleep. And he was just becoming a uh, obsessed, obsessed with his sleep because yeah. he couldn't function. And he was mm -mm. pushing himself so hard during the day and worried all day long that he would get to sleep and not be able to sleep. And then right. lo and behold, he wouldn't be able to sleep. Self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. yeah. And annoyed with his family and, and anybody who kept him from sleep was the devil. Right. So, and it was really interesting to talk to him about, you know, he went through the whole insomnia, CBT for insomnia stuff where they told him to, you know, sleep only four hours, stay only four hours in the middle, in the bed. And um, which is, you know, that you do the sleep restriction hmm. and you only are allowed, you know, you got to get to bed at midnight and wake up at five. And so you could only stay really short amount of time just to make sure that you kind of relearn that bed is for sleep only. Mm -hmm. um, and you're so tired that you can't, uh, do anything but sleep when you're in the bed. So it's about conditioning and, and you know, and how hard it is to actually stick with that and how hard, you know, all the different regimens. He tried CBT, CBD. He tried, you know, <laughs> THC. He tried uh, melatonin. He tried mm. Ambien. All, and everything he tried would run off. So, you know, I, I think that he was somebody who I think um, when he finally figured it out, it was he had to change a lot in his life. Mm -hmm. um, he changed his job um, mm -hmm. and suddenly he had, didn't have the same stressors. And he actually started exercising for half an hour, sw swimming half an hour every morning. And he thinks it's the exercise that he suddenly created this really big burst of upstate time in the, in the morning. And now he has zero sleep problems. You know, it's interesting too. And again, this was from prior interviews in the circadian rhythm with, with uh, two uh, experts. I, and I tell my patients all the time too, you know, even if you're like one of these people that you don't sleep well, and, and then, and then you, you finally fall asleep at five in the morning and you wake up at two in the afternoon, it's so important to get that, even mid morning sunlight, because it resets, as you know, your super chiasmic nucleus, the eye that's, you know, the light and puts your whole body into a rhythm, you know, that is critical, you know, so that exactly. later on you go to sleep, right? So that's essentially what you're saying. Yeah. This guy, yeah. And it's light across the whole day that matters, right? So we're super sensitive to the, to the frequency of the light wavelengths of the light mm -hmm. in the morning, we need the, the blue light of the sun. And mm -hmm. then in the, in the evening, we need the red light of the sunset. Mm. So it's really great to be able to get both of those to be, you know, out in the morning and take a walk or sit in the sun, do whatever you can, and not through a window, you know, like really be mm -hmm. outside. Right, be outside, right. I tell mm -hmm. people, go for a walk, walk your dog, you know, exactly. go get your paper, go get a newspaper, drink a cup of coffee somewhere, you know. Exactly, like jumpstart. Your... I call it the downbeat of the upstate, oh, right? It's right. like it's, it, everything gets and this, charged. And this is critical now when, you know, getting so many of my patients are working remotely so people just get stuck in their Indoors. home right they're busy doing some of their taking care of other things at home which is fine but you know get out you know get yeah, out yeah under and... these low lighting conditions like low light across the 24 hours is not natural mm -hmm. you know no, no surprise that people are having 
you know, un, unable to really regulate because their circadian rhythms don't, don't know what time of day it is. Right, right. Well, I really enjoyed your book, The Power of the Downstate, and I recommend it to any of our listeners who really want to understand better about the importance of sleep. Uh, Dr. Mendick, where can we send people who want to know more about your work or, you know, any of your writings? Yeah, if you go to my website, sarahmednick.com, S-A-R-A-M-E-D-N-I-C-K, uh, I have a lot of my writings there and um, they can get a hold of me that way. And All also right. I'm on Twitter. And okay. Yeah. Ter terrific. I'll be following you. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks, team.